evidence and answers. We live in an age when many of us feel as if we're swimming in a sea of information. From broadcast media to cell phones to internet access, we are assailed with more information than we can possibly assimilate. Just on the internet alone, we are asked to deal with social networking, blogs, news feeds, forwarded emails, spam, not to mention our compulsion to Google any topic that crosses our mind. Most of the information we encounter is intended to impact our view of the truth. What we think about politics, economics, relationships, needs, and wants. Its purpose is to reshape your current view of reality into a different view that someone else is promoting. This reshaping may be good or bad, depending upon the validity and implications of the revised view. Can there be truth in media? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, we will hear a study by Kirby Anderson, president of Probe Ministries, as he shared at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. He will speak about the topic of truth in media. Now with part one of this fascinating message, is Kirby Anderson. I want to spend a little bit of time. This is one of the things that Pat asked me to talk about is the issue of media. And in some respects, this relates to where our country is. And I wanted to give you some facts and figures. And hopefully there'll be enough information here that even if you've sort of studied this before, you'll learn some new things. So I hope that you'll stick with me for a few minutes and we'll all have dinner together. But I wanted to uh, maybe start by giving you a sense of why this is such an important topic. And one of the ways maybe I can illustrate this is through a study that was done by George Barna. I've mentioned George Barna a number of times, but if you're not familiar with him, he is an individual that has really done, I think, a very good job of helping us understand where our culture is. He's sort of like a, an evangelical George Gallup, and he's done all sorts of studies. And one of the studies he has done is on what he calls the sources of significant influence, SSIs. And he's trying to figure out what are the things that are making our decisions, affecting our worldview. And he concluded that his sources of significant influence were movies, television, the internet, books, music, public policy and law, and family. Now, if you look at that, the first five of those in the list are what? Different aspects of the media movies and television, of course, all the things on the internet, books, music, are all parts of the media. So it illustrates only so well how profoundly the media is having an impact in our life. Now, when he published this in Christianity Today, it was one of the most controversial articles ever published in terms of the number of letters to the editor, and that's due to the other part of his study, which concluded that the church was not even in the top 12 sources of influence in America. Now think about this for just a minute. Imagine that if you were to do this study, say, a hundred years ago, what do you think would be the most significant sources of influence in American culture a hundred years ago? Church and family, don't you think? Church and family, family church, I don't know whether it's one and two, but those would be the highest. And back then, you recognize that 
100 years ago, we didn't have movies. 100 years ago, we didn't have television. 100 years ago, we didn't have internet. We did have books and music, but certainly not even music displayed and made available through iPads and things like that. So you can begin to see how profound the media has become. And I think you can begin to see this if you start looking at the sheer extent of media exposure in America. Let's look at this for just a minute. I want to give you a couple of facts and figures, and in your notes you can put down these numbers. And I think it will give you a handle for what we are facing today with especially the youngest generation. We're going to look at the media usage by the time a typical student graduates from high school. By the time a typical student graduates from high school, he or she will have seen 22,000 hours of television. By the way, if you're a pastor or a Bible study teacher, you're going to use these very effectively, I think. If you're a parent, you're going to use these, I think, very effectively as well. Now, that number seems really large, doesn't it? And to put it in perspective, the average young person will have spent about 11,000 hours in a classroom, which means they will spend twice as much time in front of a TV set as they have in a classroom. Does that give you a sense of how extensive that is? And I will go to the mat on that number because that number is really based on some very accurate studies that come from the A.C. Nielsen Company. A.C. Nielsen Company spends millions and millions of dollars to find out which TVs you're on, what channel they're tuned to, who is watching them. Well, if you have young people, you recognize that when they're young, they watch TV, but as they get a little bit older, they listen to what? Music. Now, this number is a little fuzzier. It's based on a study that was done by the Journal of the American Medical Association, but by doing interviews and diaries, concluded that just in the teen years alone, the average young person listens to about 10,500 hours of music. And this study needs to be replicated because a lot of this study was done before the full market penetration of the iPod and the iPhone. Young people listen to a lot more music today because of that, aren't they? Which brings me to my next point. They spend a lot of time in front of what? Computer. Now again, this study comes from the University of California at San Diego, and it's really just an estimate on the number of hours young people spend in front of a computer screen. But again, I think new studies need to be done because now young people are carrying a computer in their hands, aren't they? But again, about 13,000 hours of music. Well, you add to that things like video games and movies and videos and DVDs and books and magazines and newspapers, you're recognizing that essentially a young person today is growing up in the midst of what I would call a media storm, aren't they? Now, let me try to give you some handle on these numbers, interestingly enough, because what I am going to now show you is a graph that I've created from numbers. You won't find this in a book, but again, this is unique to me, and that is the Kaiser Family Foundation, every couple of years, every about five years, they actually do a complete and very exhaustive analysis of how young people actually use media. And I'm looking right now at one part of this chart, age 8 to 18, okay? And what I have done is created this graph where you can see that television is in the blue, and if you look at this, you can see that that's increasing in use every year. Music has increased dramatically, partially because of things like the iPod. I think now this new study is just about ready to come out. We'll see how that looks. Computers are increasing dramatically. Video games have increased. Matter of fact, the only thing that's decreased is reading, and then movies are increasing. And so, basically, you have young people in 2009 consuming almost 11 hours of media in eight hours. You say, wait a minute, how do you consume 11 hours of media in eight hours? It's known as multitasking. 
These are the young people that have their TV set on while they're texting their friends. Their computer is up. They're supposedly listening to music while they're Facebooking their friends. Are you familiar with this? Okay, I want to see some head shaking here. That's the phenomenon known as what? Multitasking. If you look at that number, you've got to be concerned. You've got to recognize what we are facing today as a challenge. You know, over the last couple of days, Suzanne and I have gone to some restaurants. And you know, when I go in, I remember in the old days when I used to see guys kind of checking out all the girls. Now they're just all looking like they're praying, but they're not praying. They're looking down at what? Their cell phones. I've seen young people actually gather together, sit across from each other, and they're all looking at their phones, sometimes texting each other across the table. Are you with me on this? And so I'm going to say some more about that in just a minute, but it illustrates the point. Let's go back for just a minute. As I go through this, and I'm going to do this fairly quickly because I know we're a little bit late on time, so I've taken out a few slides, and you can get the full presentation, of course, on the Probe website. But what I want to do is generally talk about media and then come back and specifically talk about television. Why? Because that was one of the most important sources of influence. And televisions still are the most ubiquitous form of media. More homes have TV sets than have indoor plumbing. There's a joke there, but I'll leave it to you, okay? More TV sets in homes than, TV, than indoor plumbing in homes, okay? So remember what we said just a minute ago when we looked at television. The average young person, by the time he or she graduates, will have watched, what, about 22,000 hours of television. Now, if you've been paying attention, I've only been talking about the sheer quantity of media input. What about the quality of that media input? What do they see when that TV set is on? Well, for example, they see 16,000 televised homicides. That's a level of visual violence that is unprecedented in the history of the Western world, is it not? Young people would never have seen that amount of violence unless they were not like in a war zone. Now, I recognize there's a difference between real violence and violence on television, but still think about that for just a minute. And that number's probably low because with the advent of a lot of these new CSI programs, I think the kill ratio is even higher than it used to be. 16,000 televised homicides, 200,000 acts of violence, hitting, slapping, kicking, hitting. This is something that, again, we have never seen before in American culture or in Western or Eastern culture. We've never seen this before. One more statistic. I don't want to wear you out with statistics tonight, but just to give you a few. They will also see 640,000 television commercials. Can you believe that? Well, these should cause us to pay some attention. And so we might say, well, how do we think about this from a biblical point of view? Now, I'll be the first to admit, when I look at my Bible, it doesn't say anything about television. I don't see the word DVD in there or iPod in my book, or, you know, Bible or anything else. But I think we have some biblical principles. For example, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, you know, we should, as believers, should do what? Flee from youthful lusts. And then as soon as he says what to stay away from, what does he go on to say? We should do what? We should pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So certainly I think we should begin to pay attention to what's coming into our eye gate and our ear gate if we're going to have discernment. Another set of verses I put on your handout, Colossians 3.8. Here it says, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, does that mean we could never read anything that has anger in it? Well, no, Bible has anger in it. That's not the point. The point is, is that a wise and discerning Christian is going to recognize that what comes in sometimes goes out. I used to program computers when I was in graduate school. We had a phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Remember that? 
You know, a wise and discerning Christian says, wait a minute, these inputs might manifest themselves in dangerous or inappropriate ways. Look at that filthy language of your lips. I can tell you, I've spoken enough Christian high schools, Christian grade schools, homeschool groups, and things like that. And I'll tell you, lots of times, young people who are really not even that exposed to the kind of language of the streets sometimes come up with those. I mean, if the teacher's gone, I'll say, okay, let's just be real honest. How many of you used a bad word in the last week? It's amazing how many hands go up, even in a Christian school. I say, where does that come from? Do your parents like, speak like that? Oh, no. Does your pastor talk like that? No. Does your teacher talk like that? No. Where does it come from? Television, movies, the media, something like that. A couple more real quickly. Philippians 4.8. Here's a positive. Here, Paul is telling us that we should focus on those things which are what? True and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, excellent and praiseworthy. Certainly, we should focus on those things, right? One more I put down on the verses there, Romans 13, verse 13. And in my book, I have a whole chapter on media, so you can go into this in more detail. But here's one more set of verses. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. What's the point? We need, as believers, to develop what? Discernment. If you notice in my handout, I suggest that there are at least three simple steps to discernment. It's a word we use all the time. There's a lot of verses that talk about discernment. How do you develop it? Here's my thought. The first is to stop. That is, stop what you're doing long enough to concentrate. We live, and your children and grandchildren especially live, in this media storm, which means that because of that, your brain, I'm going to talk more about brain studies in just a minute, in order to kind of give you some peace, oftentimes you kind of shut down. You ever noticed how you will watch a commercial five or six times and then finally you pay attention to what it's all about, right? That's your brain kind of protecting you. So what you need to do is stop long enough to concentrate. Okay, let's be honest. A while ago we sang. Did everybody pay attention to every word when we were singing? Some of you did. A lot of you probably didn't because, again, it's your brain just trying to make sense of this, this over amount of data that comes into your life. So I think the first key is to stop long enough to concentrate. You know, when I would sometimes come home, I'd say, kids, I'm home. Hey, kids, I'm home. The TV's on. Finally, I pull out the remote and go click, click. And I get this blink, blink. Oh, hi, Dad. Hey, you know. What do we got? The phenomenon known as TV zombies. Do you have any TV zombies in your house? They just kind of stare at the TV, you know, and they're just not paying attention and they're not concentrating. So stop long enough to concentrate. Second of all, listen. That is to give attention to what is entering your mind. You know, were we paying attention to all those words we were singing? Do you pay attention to the music that's on when you're driving the car? Do you pay attention to when the TV's on? Well, lots of times we don't. And I think it's really important. You know, we used to do a talk at Probe. It was called Between Rock and a Hard Place. We would have these, back then we had slides because we didn't have all the computers and everything, but we would play uh, some of the music of the pop sung, singers of that day, and the kids would kind of sing along, and then we would put on the screen the words and then kind of evaluate the ver verses. And I cannot tell you the number of times kids would say, I didn't know it said that. I said, you just sang the words. Yeah, but I really wasn't paying attention. I didn't know it said that. You know, pay attention. Stop, listen and then look. Look at the consequences of entertainment in your life. What is the impact that media is having in your life, the life of your children, your grandchildren? So over the next couple of minutes, I want to give you just one or two studies, and in my book, 
Christian Ethics in Plain Language. I have a whole chapter in media. If you don't want to buy the book or we run out of the books, you can go to our website, probe.org. We have the Christian in television, the Christian in movies, the Christian in film, the Christian in music. So we've got lots of things that would be helpful to you in developing that. But let me just for a minute tell you just one or two of the studies that illustrate how profoundly media is affecting our worldview. The first thing from my book that I talk about is, is that first of all, the media presents an unreal view of the world. Here's a newsflash. Reality TV is not reality, okay? More importantly, it presents an oversimplified view of the world. You know, a lot of these situation comedies, predictable plots, one-dimensional characters, this is not true reality. And one of the biggest concerns of all is that the media desensitizes its viewers. What today is shocking is tomorrow's ho-hum. So again, we look at media in general, but let me now come back and look at television in specific. And I'll just use one example. In the interest of time, I kind of pulled a few slides out, but you can find much more on our website. But let me just give you one example to show you indeed that media affects the way you perceive the world. You with me? This study comes from um, George Gerbner and Larry Gross. I use it because it's a fairly popular one. It's an academic study, but it appeared in Psychology Today, so you can read it for yourself. It's called The Scary World of the TV's Heavy Viewer. They work at the Annenberg School of Communication. What they did was they began to evaluate how people who were heavy TV viewers perceived the world compared to people who were not heavy TV viewers. You with me on that? So they control and an experiment. They found that heavy TV viewers, first of all, tended to vastly overestimate their likelihood of being involved in a violent crime. Why? Because they saw violence on television, so they thought it was going to be violent. People coming to Hawaii are looking for Hawaii Five-0, right? People in Las Vegas are looking for CSI, right? You know? I've, I had Chinese students one time said when they came to Dallas, they said, where's the gunfire? Because they'd always seen movies with people getting shot in the streets. Well, a heavy TV viewer tends to vastly overestimate their likelihood of being involved in a violent crime. Heavy TV viewers also tended to overestimate the percentage of people in white-collar occupations, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. Why? Because a lot of the TV shows were about that. They also tended to overestimate the percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world. Why? Because most television programs are about Americans. Now the point I'm making is not that it's absolutely essential you walk out of here in the next few minutes knowing the exact percentage of Americans compared to the rest of the world. But the point I'm making is, is that if I can look at things which are easy to quantify, the likelihood of being involved in a violent crime, percentage of Americans in white collar occupations, your comparative Americans compared to the rest of the world, if those are skewed, is it possible that other things that are more difficult to quantify, materialism, sexuality, and other things, those would be skewed as well? And what they found is that heavy TV viewers live in an unreal world. If you're paying attention, you know I haven't mentioned something. How many people fit into that category of heavy TV viewers? Half of America. Amazing. So it affects your perception of the world. Does it affect your behavior? Yes, it does. Let's look at this real quickly. Couple studies. First one comes from the Journal of Pediatrics. The American Association of Pediatricians, a number of years ago, published a study showing a very definite correlation. Correlation doesn't always show causation, but in this case, I think it does. But they found that young people who see lots of sex on television and a lot of sexual images on television are more likely to be involved sexually than those who see less 
sex on television or don't have a television set in the home at all. Matter of fact, they've done a follow-up study showing that young girls who have seen lots of sexual images on television are more likely to also be pregnant than those who have seen less. So that's sex. How about violence? This study came out a couple of years before, and actually it's what's called a meta-study. It combined together about a thousand different studies, including three studies by three different surgeon generals under three different administrations, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. And they all concluded again that there was a causal correlation and connection between media and then well, violent media in particular and aggressive behavior in some children. Now, they had to put the weasel words in there because they didn't want to say that just because you see violence, you're going to be the next axe murder serial killer. But the point is, is again, very definite correlation. Does that make sense? What you see, read, and hear does affect your worldview and it affects your behavior. The Proverbs say, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, right? So it would make sense that that would be the case. Well, before we run out of time, and I took out a few slides, so that might leave enough time for some questions at the end. We also have done a lot of studies lately on how the media affects your brain. And so if you allow me to kind of conduct a neurophysiology class for a few minutes, I won't get too technical here. We'll start with some fun things, but we have learned a lot more about how media affects your brain. The first really comes from a study that was started by just an offhanded comment made by Nicholas Carr in Atlantic Monthly. A little bit later, I'm going to talk about his book, but I'll start with where that conversation began many years ago. And that is seven years ago, he began to ask the question, what is the internet doing to my brain? Here's how he put it. He said, over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. Now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. He said, immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument. Now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. Some of you that can remember when you used to read a book and you would be reading and all of a sudden hours had gone by and you couldn't believe it. And now you're saying, it's really hard for me to even stay in a section of anything I'm reading for more than a few minutes. And he began to say, we always think that our brain is affecting our world, but is the world and in particular the media affecting our brain? Here's another one. Stephen Kotler in Psychology Today said, constantly using Twitter is reducing the time of concentration to a few dozen words. He says, Twitter will tune the brain to reading and comprehending information at 140 characters at a time. Now, I know some of you are in the ministry here. Just think about this for a minute. Can I communicate the gospel in 140 characters? Don't think so. There is a book that came out a number of years ago, and they had short chapters. And somebody asked him, why is it that you have these short chapters? And he said, because I think that a typical person in America, because of television, can only concentrate for eight minutes. And it takes about eight minutes to read this section of chapter. And they said, why eight minutes? Because the typical television program has eight minutes, then a commercial, eight minutes, then a commercial. And so already decades ago, we were recognizing that people were getting their brains tuned to about eight minutes. If indeed that's the case, that means that you've tuned me out and tuned me in two or three times just in the time I've been up here. Is that right? I'll be honest, they have probably the case. But imagine 140 characters. You know, pastors, lots of luck. If that's the next generation trying to communicate this in 140 characters, we have a big challenge. And the reason for this is, is what we call, this is a big word, 
you can impress your friends, neuroplasticity. That is, the brain is a lot more plastic than we thought that it was. We're not only, as one researcher said, what we read, we are how we read. The internet today puts emphasis on efficiency and immediacy. You watch a young person with a computer or cell phone and they're jumping back and forth. They're following all sorts of links here and we're expecting them to follow a logical, sustained kind of presentation of the gospel, a logical presentation of the epistles. Think about that. It's a real challenge in the 21st century. The brain has the ability to reprogram itself on the fly, altering its way it functions. It's not only true for young people, it's a true for the grandparents in this room as well. There's a principle of neuroplasticity, use it or lose it. That is, if you are using that in following various neural pathways, then those light up, those connections between your brain light up, and you are using them more effectively. But if you don't use others, they sort of fade away and they drop off. And so the brain can reprogram itself literally on the fly. And a lot of people are saying, this is going to have an impact in the next generation. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes part one of Kirby Anderson's study on truth in the media, taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online for more Evidence and Answers.